Um, if it's too much, then we'll just pick up next week. But this is the third part of our series titled Fellowship Divine, God's Blueprint for Otherworldly Joy. And today we're going to talk about the membership and the opposition of the fellowship. And so I really was excited to do this one because the first few verses, verses 12 through 14 to me, are really powerful. And so I'll probably be spending most of my time there. But let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Don't always do that, but I feel the need to do that this morning. Uh, I got a little brain fog, and I just want to pray that the Lord gives me the words. But let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you'll be with us as we study your word. Give me the words so I can teach faithfully. And I pray, God, that you'll just take the truths that you want us to hear this morning, plant them in our hearts, and that they'll bear fruit throughout the week. We thank you, God, for all the wonderful things you've done in our life. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse number 12, let's start there. It says, and this is John speaking, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. We'll stop right there and talk about those verses. So for your notes, you got those in front of you, and... Uh, for those of y'all who are listening to our podcast, we are still in the process of uploading information to our website. So in time, we'll have all of this information available to you, all the notes, if you want to listen to the podcast and follow along to what what I have. Uh, what's that? Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna upload that stuff. So um, we'll eventually have that figured out. And we got other PowerPoints and articles and stuff. We're in the process of getting uploaded. We've already got a number of those up. I want to thank Christy so much for doing that for us because I know it's a lot of hard work, but thank you for putting all that information up there. Uh, but the first point for our notes this morning is John is talking to us about attainable attributes. So these are different aspects of the family of God that we need to do our best to emulate. And I think they also correspond to different phases of life and different things that people experience at different moments. But this is all about the character of the family. And so that first point is the character of the family. What is the family of God like? What is it something, um, what is it uh, supposed to look like? How should we be? So this deals with our identity. So the first group that's mentioned here in verses 12 through 14 is little children. And when it mentions little children, it varies a little bit. In verse 12, it says little children. And then it says, your sins are forgiven you. And then in verse 13, he says, little children once again, but he says, you have known the father. So both of those things apply to children in particular. At least for me, I feel very much like a child in my relationship with God. Whenever I have doubts, whenever I have guilt over sin that I've committed in the past or things that I struggle with. And as a child, God comforts me. My father comforts me and tells me that my sins are forgiven. And so children are naturally, at a very young age, they're vulnerable and they're trusting. And so whenever they feel like their feelings are hurt, um, you know, mama's angry with me, daddy's angry with me, the comfort that they receive really is something that's highlighted right here, I think. Whenever we are what would you say? Um, we're pretty weak in our faith. We're pretty childlike in our faith. We need that from God. We need God to say, 
you're okay. Your sins are forgiven. I'm here. I'm not going to leave you. I'm your father or I'm your Abba. I'm your heavenly daddy. You don't have to worry. I'm never going to leave you. And so that's how I think we are all at certain points, right? Even the mature Christians who have been saved for years and who have walked with the Lord for a long time, we always have to fall back on that, don't we? And so when we look at these attributes of the family, I'm not saying that one of these is supposed to characterize us like for a whole phase of life and it's just that one. Usually we go back and forth, but all of these things we should have. All these attributes are things that we should work for, but the one that we always need to fall back on is we're children, we're loved by God, we're accepted by God, He's our Father, and our sins are forgiven. And so anytime we feel like we've just sinned too much, we're guilty in the eyes of God. God, how could you save me? God, how could you accept me into your family? We have to go back to that that feeling that we had as kids when we would go to our parents and we would feel that security when they wrapped their arms around us. And I think that's something we need to be reminded of, that we are God's little children, not just children in some uh, legal sense, you know, not children in just a, you know, I, I'm begotten by God sense, but children in an ongoing, he, he tenderly loves us. So that's part of the fellowship that we're really talking about uh, in the book of First John. The next attribute is fathers. So fathers are far-seeing they're humble. They're humble by life experiences. You know, as you get older, you have, I suppose, um, a little more skepticism that comes with growing up. You know, kids are, are very trusting, right? And that's a good attribute to have when it comes to God, because there's nothing wrong with God. But the older you get, you start to realize, well, people aren't necessarily worthy of the trust that you give God, right? Uh, there are a lot of people that you should have some skepticism toward, because you know, there's sin in the world. And so you start to have this mentality that broadens a little bit. Now I'm thinking in terms of, okay, what really matters? What's most important? Who can I trust? Who can I rely on? And you're a little bit, uh, what's the word I'm trying to find here? That fairy tale illusion that you have when you're a kid, it shatters somewhat. Yes, exactly. And, and you get that when you get older. And so fathers here, I think, is referring to those Christians that they're further along in their walk. Not necessarily people that are old, right? But I think that it does come with age. So it's possible for someone to be 15 years old and to have a very deep, wise perspective, right? But generally, you don't develop that perspective until you're older. But the further along you get in life... Yeah, and some people, sadly, like you said, that some people never do. But that's the goal is that the further we get in our faith, um, we're not saying... All right, well, you can't trust in anybody. All right, you can't trust in God. A lot of times life experiences are hard, right? And when suffering comes your way, when tragedy comes your way, instead of having this insight that fathers do, okay, that the spiritual fathers talked about here, okay, listen, there's a bigger picture. Because it says, fathers, you have known him that is from the beginning. And when we talk about beginning, what do we mean by beginning? Well, if you go back to John chapter 1, it's talking about the word of life, Jesus, who is from the beginning and was with the Father. So the further you get along in your faith, when something comes your way, you realize this is just now. This is just now, okay? This is life. It's it's fallen. You know, we're, we're in a broken world. We are broken people. And we have to look beyond the now, beyond the present, back to God who is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. He is unchanging and we find our rock in him. And I think that that is something that I saw so much in my Ditta. My grandfather, he was my rock. He was a person who had wisdom and I could go to him when I struggled with questions about life. And even though he had his own struggles and even he would say to me, I feel like a little child in the eyes of God. To me, he was a spiritual father. You know, not just my physical grandfather, he was a spiritual father. And he was able to think back to 
the beginning when God made everything. And he loved to talk about origins and he loved to talk about the end of all things, last things. And that gave me perspective. And so as a Christian, when you first get saved, you're not really thinking about those things as much. You're thinking about, oh, I'm accepted. I'm forgiven. I'm a little child. God is my daddy. That's what you're thinking. And there's joy in that. We should always fall back on that. We should never lose it. Okay. And my grandfather didn't lose that. He would tell me, I still feel like a little child. But he had gone further in his faith. He, he wasn't this vulnerable child that easily became insecure. You know, Every now and then, he would, as we all do, feel insecure. But he was a rock to those around him and people could depend upon him, not just financially, but we could depend upon him spiritually. He, he didn't just provide us worldly things. He provided us with this un, uh, what would you say? This, this unconditional otherworldly wisdom and love. And, and that's what we need to be able to provide to other people around us. And so while this doesn't necessarily per- pertain to physical age, it generally comes with age. The further along you are in life, the more of a perspective that you have. So fathers are far-seeing and humble. They're humbled by their sin. They're humbled by um, the, the knowledge that they have developed as they've lived their life in the world. And we should grow and mature in our faith as well. And the last group is young men. And it mentions in both cases here, it says, young men, you've overcome the wicked one. And in verse 14, it says, the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. It says, you're strong. And that's how I felt, and that's what appealed to me the most when I was a teenager. And I want to share with you this conversation. Uh, I may have shared it with some of y'all before, but those of y'all that are listening haven't heard this. Hopefully it'll benefit you. But I can remember when I was in high school. Um, I actually it wasn't high school. I take it back. It was college, and I was studying this concept of God being the divine warrior king. It was something I was studying seminary. I'd read several books on the topic. I was really into the Old Testament, and it appealed so much to me. God as this divine warrior king and and we can do all things in him and we overcome in him and it, it just it appealed to me as a young man and I can remember my dad just kind of smiling and looking at me and you know kind of shaking his head a little bit and, and saying you know buddy the older you get the less that's going to appeal to you and I'm like what do you mean he's like well he's like I, I can remember feeling the way you're feeling and God is a divine warrior king but what you're going to value even more when you get older is that God is your father and he's eternal and you're going to be feeling less strong you're going to be feeling weaker the older you get you're going to have all these failures that are accumulating over time and you're going to look at those and feel like man I'm, I'm worth nothing and that's when you have to fall back on God and being that little child and looking at the knowledge of scripture, which says that God doesn't change and he doesn't make mistakes and he didn't make a mistake when he chose to save you. And that kind of perspective at the time really didn't strike me as very important because to me at that time, I wasn't struggling when it came to my salvation. I wasn't struggling with doubts. I wasn't you know, struggling with guilt. I was just thinking, listen, we need to go out there and we need to take our apologetics and we need to win the world for Jesus. And we need to argue with the atheists. And we need to, you know, that, that was just the way I was thinking at the time. And so I think that I can almost imagine John when he writes is smiling a little bit. Like, I know you young men, you're strong. You know, you're strong in the Lord. The word of God abides in you and, and don't lose that. And you're overcoming the wicked one. You've already overcome the wicked one when you got saved, but you're because the word of God's abiding in you. You're continually overcoming the wicked one. And that's good. But those young men could probably learn a lot from the fathers that had, you know, less of the tempestuous nature 
but had that stable reliance on God and that eternal perspective. They're able, yeah, I can imagine, you know, as they think about God, they're looking at God as the ancient of days. You know, he's got the white hair and the white beard, that imagery in, in Daniel, right? And they're thinking, man, God's unchanging. And he's always been and he always will be. And I just feel so small. They had that humble wisdom. And the young men, they were they were more wanting to assert themselves for the kingdom of God, you know, and give glory to God by, you know, overcoming the wicked one. And that's all good. And we need to have that same passion, but we need to balance it with the wisdom of the fathers. And we also need to have that humility of the little children who are always able to go to God and say, God, I know nothing. God, I am weak. I don't feel strong. I don't feel like I know a whole lot. I'm just glad that you're my father. And so when you see all of these things, you can see that they all have benefits. They're all beautiful. They're all wonderful in their own way. And they usually characterize different times in your life. Uh, I feel like I was the, the young man in college. You know, it was all about trying to win people to the Lord. And honestly, I was trusting a little bit more in my strength than I was trusting in God's strength. And at the time, I wouldn't have recognized it that way. But I, I didn't have that that deep felt reliance upon the authority of God's word. I thought more was my reason, right? I, I would say to myself, God knows all things and he's given me a, a mind to reason. And if I understand logic well enough and I present it eloquently enough, then I can convince anybody that God is, I can convince anybody that Jesus came back from the dead. It was very much relying on my wisdom at the time. And I think that, you know, God used that passion, absolutely did at that time of my life. But at the same time, I was lacking some of the humility and I, and I still, you know, need to work on that. But that's what I want to be to my family. That's what I want to be to people around me. I want to be that, that stable father figure who can give wisdom to others and sort of uh, just remind people that we're, we're very small compared to God and we need to have that stability that comes with knowing our limitations and knowing um, God's sufficiency. But little children, fathers, and young men, and these all characterize us at different times. And often we'll go a week and we'll be all of them. You know, one day we'll feel like that strong young man. The other day we'll feel more humble, humbled by God. And then those other days we'll be casting ourselves at God's feet, just begging for his forgiveness because we feel insecure. We're all of those things. All right, the next point is a well-balanced worldview. So number two is a well-balanced worldview, and that deals with the perspective of the family. So let's look at verses 15 through 17. Perspective. Number one is character. So number one is the character of the family, and number two is the perspective of the family. So in verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, what exactly is John trying to say with each one of these statements? So all of this has to do with how we see the world around us. As Christians, whether we're in the little children class we're in the young man class or we're in the father class, we all need to be reminded of the perspective that each one of us as simple members of the family of God need to have. 
And so he tells us that the world is passing away. And if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when he says world here, the word cosmos in Greek, the way John tends to use it, the world is characterized by sin. The world is characterized by unbelief and rebellion. So he's not saying that God, he's not saying that uh, God wants us to look upon the world in terms of people as a bad thing. He's telling us that the world is characterized by these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And those are things that we're not to have in our lives. So it's not as if the physical world is a bad thing. There were some people in the early church that believed that uh, they were Gnostics and they kind of thought that the physical world was just necessarily bad because it's physical and all that's good is spiritual. And so the idea is one day God's going to remove all the physical and he's going to bring in a spiritual creation. And of course, that's not true. The Bible says when God created the physical universe in the beginning that it was very good and it's still very good. It's just tainted by sin and God is going to fix it. He's going to remove the sin and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But in the meantime, because the world is broken by a curse and because we ourselves are affected by that on a fundamental level, we have to remind ourselves of what we're up against. A lot of times we think in terms of the devil. The devil's the enemy. He absolutely is. But we have to understand that what, what the devil represents is sin. The devil himself is not like sin incarnate. The devil is a fallen angel. Okay, Michael could have been that fallen angel. He didn't. Okay, So it, it's not about Satan. It's about what Satan did. Now, Satan is thoroughly corrupt because of his rebellion. And the Bible says that's not going to change. Human beings, on the other hand, made in the image of God, we can change by the grace and power of God. But we still struggle with the same sin that characterizes Satan, because all sin is lawlessness. And so John is reminding his readers here that you are not, um, you are not exempt from temptation. You are not exempt from struggle in the world. And even if we were, hypothetically, even if we were to take Satan and bound him in the bottomless pit, like John talks about in Revelation, there's still going to be sin in the world. It's amazing that it describes in the millennial passages in Scripture, in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Isaiah especially, it describes people, rebels, in the millennium being executed for their rebellion against God. And this is when the devil is bound in the bottomless pit. So John is well aware, and we should be well aware, that even if you were to take Satan out of the picture, we still have a sin nature. And so that's what these phrases refer to. The first one, lust of the flesh, just refers to the fact that sin comes from within. Our flesh is corrupt. Now, our spirit has been changed. That's what being born again is. We've been, uh, to use a fancy word, regenerated. And as being born again people, our sins have been washed away. If we were to die and leave this flesh, this body of sin and death, our spirit is fit in the eyes of God to go to heaven. But while we're in this life, we do struggle with our flesh because our flesh has been contaminated with sin. And don't ask me how that works. Don't ask me to scientifically explain it. Don't ask me to spiritually explain it because I can't. All I know is it's what the Bible says. We inherit through our physical ancestor, Adam, a sin nature. And so our body is the vehicle of that sin nature. Once you're saved and you're born again, if your spirit leaves your body, you don't have a sin nature anymore. And Paul seems to say that when you get saved, it's sort of like your sin nature is cut away. Circumcised is the word. It's cut away from your spirit. So your spirit is sort of like in the Holy of Holies with, with God. Think of the tabernacle and, and we're a priest 
and we're in the Holy of Holies and we're there with God. That's our spirit. Yeah, but on the outside, okay, uh, surrounding the tent, in the camp, you could say, there's still lots of sin. Now, inside the tabernacle, no sin is permitted, and we are clean. But because of our attachment to this body and the world we live in, we still pick up dirt. And that's what Jesus talked about before the Lord's Supper, whenever he washed their feet, saying, you've been washed clean. But because you're in the world, as you're walking through the world, your feet are coming into contact with the ground and you're going to pick up some dirt. And so we still have that struggle and that struggle because of the flesh comes from within. So there's something in us through Adam that has not been entirely eradicated yet, even though our spirit has been washed clean. So sin comes from within. The lust of the eyes refers to sin that appeals to our senses. So I don't think these are three distinct things. I think that there's a lot of overlap. But lust of the flesh refers to sin coming from within. Lust of the eyes refers to sin uh, that appeals to us via our senses. So that could be lust in the traditional sense. It could be uh, greed, you know, wanting material success, wanting money. And of course, pride of life sort of encapsulates all of it. We want to be autonomous. We want to be separate. And, and that's what really struck me so much. I think about going to the Renaissance Festival. Our family went there yesterday and there's so much paganism. And the, the main principle of paganism or even modern Satanism is autonomy. It's being, being able to do what you want to do and have no one tell you different. Like it, it's your life. You can live it the way you want. And that's the pride of life. The Bible says that we're under an authority. God's the authority. He's perfectly righteous. And we can't just do whatever we want to do. Or rather, while we're given the choice, there will be consequences for that choice. And people don't like that idea. They don't like the idea of God, the authority, giving us consequences for our sin. And so they take God out of the equation. And that's why modern Satanists are atheists. They use Satan as a symbol, but they completely remove God from the equation. Now, they don't have any problem with the idea of spirits or gods or whatever. But if you're talking about a like supreme God who created the universe, and I think we talked about this earlier this week. It may have been on Wednesday. But uh, we talked about how uh, in all forms of paganism and in evolution, for that matter, there's this idea that there is no actual creator God who exists outside the universe and created the universe. Because if there is a God like that, then he is absolute he has absolute authority. He's infinite. And so that's the difference between paganism and what the Bible teaches. In paganism, there are all these different gods, but they're essentially just like us. They're super powerful, but they're they're not an authority over you. They're just powerful. That's it. But they don't really have the right to tell you what to do. Now, of course, just like we can land a helping hand to each other, and I, the idea in paganism is if you if you placate the gods in one way or another, then you can receive some kind of power. You can receive a favor from them. But they don't have this idea that the gods deserve to be worshipped as we as Christians believe that God, the true God, deserves to be worshipped. And so the pride of life is that autonomy. In whatever form it takes, it doesn't have to be philosophical as paganism. It could just be, practically speaking, in your life, you wanting to do what you want to do your way. That's the pride of life. And he says we struggle with that. We have to place ourselves continually back under the authority of God. Um, we already are, but mentally speaking, in our experience, we have to renew our mind and have that proper perspective, have that well-balanced worldview. Now, the last section we're going to look at, and the third point, is uh, verses 18 through 23. So the last point is inevitable infiltration. And I didn't 
have that one left blank because that's a hard word to spell. <laughs> but the inevitable infiltration of the family of God from the outside. And we're going to look at heresy a little bit in just a moment. But the opposition of the family is the point for number three, the opposition of the family. And so are we on our guard, not just against the flesh, because that's something that's in us, but outside of us, the world is also trying to take our attention away from God. It's not just our sin nature. We also have an enemy on the outside, and that's what these verses deal with. So in verse 18, it says, Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that the Antichrist shall come, or that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction, that means an anointing from the Holy Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth." Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth it, acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. And so, what does the last time mean? When it says we are in the last time, he wrote this 2,000 years ago. Uh, the last hour. Was that uh, MEV translation? Last hour? Yeah. In... Um, Revelation 22, verse 20, Jesus says these words, He that testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And that's how the Bible wraps up. But I come quickly, he says. Now, the word for quickly here in Greek is taku. And taku means, it, it means to come suddenly, correct. Yeah, so it's not talking about like a definite amount of time, like how many seconds, minutes, you know, years. It's not talking about that. When he does come, it will happen rapidly. So it's not going to be a prolonged period of time as in, okay, we're a hundred years into Jesus coming back. When he does come, he will come suddenly. So what John is referring to here is that now that Jesus has gone back to heaven and he sits at the right hand of the father, no man knows the day or the hour. Uh, John was present there, one of the disciples, when Jesus told that to the crowds. No man knows the day or the hour. So when he does come back, he will come quickly. And so John is saying that we should live in light of the imminent return of Jesus. It could happen at any time. Now, of course, the millennium can't happen at any time. All right, there has to at least be seven years between this moment, if the rapture happened right now, there would be seven years, given a pre-tribulation rapture, which is what I believe, between that and the millennium being set up. So that means... Minimum, yes. So that means the millennium is not imminent. And we know that the millennium is set up by the coming of Christ to earth. So this is where you get this doctrine of the rapture versus the second coming. Or rather, you could say two phases of the second coming. And I think that's acceptable. But the idea is in John 14, again, John wrote this. In John 14, Jesus is going to come back and take his church to be with him. And that's very different. In Revelation 19, where Jesus brings his church from heaven down to earth so that we can reign with him. So the question is, how much time is between those two? They cannot happen exactly at the same time because they're two different directions. One's bringing us up. The other is coming down. So is there seconds? Some people think there are seconds. I highly doubt that. When you read John chapter 14, he's saying, I'm going to take you up so you can be with me where I am. That implies that you're going to stay with me in heaven in my father's house 
for some amount of time. Now, it's not indefinite because John also is the one that teaches us we're going to be spending our time on earth. We got to get on our horses. So how long are we going to be in heaven? Well, you can say three and a half years, as mid-tribbers say. You can say seven years, okay? Or maybe even a little more because, by the way, there's not necessarily a direct correlation between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. The rapture could happen, and there could be another year before the tribulation starts. So we don't know exactly how long this gap is. Um, I think it's it's a minimum, as y'all said a second ago, a minimum of seven years. But uh, there is a difference between the rapture and the second coming. And so what John is saying here is the last time is now because Jesus could come back right now. There's no signs that have to be fulfilled. In John's day, 2,000 years ago, he could say there's nothing that has to happen before Jesus comes back. Now, you you could say, what okay, what about all this stuff that's been talked about in, in Matthew 24, all these signs of the times that weren't happening in his day? They could have happened after the rapture. There could have been a rapture. And there could have been a year in which all of these signs played out. Things happen pretty fast often, don't they? It could have happened that way. Now, is it likely? Well, I would say that if John was living today, he would say there are a lot of factors in place that make all of those things described in Revelation even more imminent. Okay, It could happen right now. It could happen 2,000 years ago. But I think it's more likely to happen now. But again, John could say, with accuracy and in full honesty that the rapture could happen at any point. So it is the last time. And because it's the last time, you have Satan at work then as he's at work now. Again, I feel like he's at work now in, in a different way than he was back then. I, I feel like, uh, yeah, I think that the restrainer that's talked about in Second Thessalonians 2, I think the restrainer is sort of lessening his grip a little bit. And I believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in the church, but I see there are things happening right now that suggest this restraining influence is starting to wane. It's sort of like a uh, like a dam breaking loose. It doesn't happen just like that, okay? There are weaknesses. Little things start to give away. There are warning signs. Okay, it looks like it's about to break. We don't know exactly when it will, but it looks like it's going to break soon. And so I think that we are we are certainly in the end times in the general sense, but I think in a more narrow sense, we are as well. But that's another topic for another day. But the next thing is, who are they? When it says that they were not of us, if they were of us, they would not have left. They would have stayed. They would have continued. I think he's talking about a very specific group. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but there is a, a, a change of terms here that we see at the very beginning in, in chapter one, where it talks about, us and you, the us and the you, the us refers to the apostles. We have fellowship with God. We know the truth. We walk with him. We talk with him. We touched him. We saw him. That's the us. And you are the ones that came into the faith later. And you have fellowship with us now because you believe. So it seems to be that when he's talking about us here, he's talking about the apostles once again. And he's saying there was this group of people that was associated closely with us, probably in Jerusalem. And they went out from us. So they're no longer fellowshipping with us. They're no longer, you know, worshiping in church. And the reason they went out from us is because they weren't really of us. So on the outside, it appeared that they agreed with us, but they really didn't. It's like someone can come into church and sit down and it appears, oh, they're paying attention to the pastor. Oh, they agree with the statement of faith of the church. They're in line with the doctrine of the people that are here. Not necessarily. And so these people were with the apostles but they were not on board with what the apostles believed. And if you want to see 
the historical text talking about this, because right now we're looking more at the theology and the applications of this, but in uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says some false brethren came in. So these were people who really weren't believers. They were the tares. They probably did have some belief about Jesus. There were early sects among the Jews, uh, like the Ebionites, who did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but not in the sense the apostles believed. The apostles believed Messiah meant Jesus was eternal son of God who took on flesh and paid for the sins of the world. Okay, and rose again three days later. The Ebionites, on the other hand, did not believe that. They believed that Christ was a spirit who came upon Jesus at his baptism and left Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. So that's what they believe. So if they were asked, do you believe Jesus was the Christ? They'd say, well, the Christ spirit came upon him. So we're comfortable with calling Jesus the Christ insofar as the Christ spirit came upon him. Yes. So it was a special anointing, but they didn't believe in the incarnation. So these were people who also were legalists. They had a very low view of Jesus and they had a very low view of grace too. These were the guys saying, you got to be circumcised. You got to keep the law to be saved. And so these were the Judaizers. They didn't believe Jesus was God in the flesh, and they didn't believe that salvation was by grace through faith. So early on in the church, you have these people who maybe they even went through baptism. They're associating with the early church. Okay, They would even probably call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. But it became apparent in the course of time, these guys don't believe the gospel message. These guys don't believe that Jesus is the eternal son of God. And so they went out from us. And John's saying, when these people try to come and fellowship with you, when they try to come perhaps to your churches or come to your house, because uh, John or Second John talks about that. If these people come to you in the name of Jesus, but they don't hold this doctrine, they don't believe in the deity of Christ, they don't believe in grace through faith, then don't welcome them into your house. Do not support them in any way because they're not part of us anymore. They're out of fellowship. Now, of course, it is possible that someone could get caught up in this because in Second John, and I'll read this to you real quick, we might have to come back and revisit some of this next week. But uh, in Second John, it says in verse 7, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So we know that these people were little a antichrists. They are a foretaste of the antichrist that is to come. The spirit of the Antichrist, I believe, is demonic. I think the spirit of the Antichrist is a, a way of referring to the devil and his followers, um, but probably specifically the devil. The spirit of the Antichrist is the spirit that will deceive the world through Antichrist, and we know that he's going to be empowered by who? He's going to be empowered by the devil, and his father is going to be the dragon, it says, in that satanic trinity described in Revelation. But uh, here we have little a Antichrist who represent that same demonic spirit. And he says in verse 8, John does, of Second uh, John, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. So he's saying, listen, you're believers. He acknowledges that in his letters. The people that he's talking to are little children. They have the Holy Spirit. They've been born again. They have life. They've been forgiven. We've already looked at all of that. So he's saying, don't get caught up in these people's doctrine. These people are clearly not believers. The way he talks about them doesn't make it sound like they are. But he's not saying that these believers in these congregations couldn't get caught up in it. Just like the Galatians got caught up in it. Judaizers came to them and Paul said, who has bewitched you? But he says, you receive the Holy Spirit, not by the law, but by grace through faith. And so believers, saved, eternally secure people can get caught up in bad theology. And he's warning them not to let it happen. 
Because if you do, you will lose what you wrought. Wrought means what you have worked for. That's not a free gift. You will lose what you've worked for. Okay? Young men, for example, you have abided in God. You are strong. You have overcome the wicked one. Right now you're in fellowship with God. There is a great reward awaiting you in heaven because of all that. Don't lose it. And you will lose it if you fall into the trap of these deceivers. So he's warning these people that they're going to be knocking on your door and they're going to be saying, oh, we represent Jesus too. And they may even sound really persuasive, but I want you to know that I'm an apostle. They're not. And I represent Jesus. We refers to the apostles. We have a special authority from God. And he's saying you also have an unction from the Holy Spirit, an anointing from the Holy Spirit. That means you've received the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit of discernment. So you'll be able, if you're abiding in the Lord, if you're sensitive to these things, if you're listening to what I'm saying, then when they come to your door, you'll be able to see the red flags and you'll be able to say, no, we're not buying what you're selling. And so this is a really big issue, guys, in churches today. Uh, right now, Unitarianism is a horrible deception that's trapping people. This idea that Jesus is just a man, he's not really the eternal son of God. It's taking Christian churches by storm. And it's the exact same deception back then. And I can't help but wonder if this is something what, what John is saying here, the spirit of the Antichrist that was at work then, the same heresy they dealt with 2,000 years ago, we're dealing with it today. This idea that, the, yes, exactly. But I mean, the same spirit, the same deception, I think in the end times, it will be the same. I think the idea is going to be, listen, Christ is a spirit, and probably they'll even say the universe, some principle, and he's going to come upon people who worship the Antichrist and who worship the dragon, and they will receive the Christ spirit, a special anointing. They will evolve, and through secret knowledge, they will be exalted. And that's what Gnostics were all about, secret knowledge, spiritual evolution. And it goes right along with Darwinism. It goes right along with the setting today. And so we have to be on our guard because we're seeing a revival of this. For 2,000 years, guys, after this happened, Gnosticism is flying low, okay? It, it, did, it surfaced every now and then in church history, but it never became something that really threatened the church. It's starting to threaten the church again now. And, and that's through evolution. Okay, Evolution opened the door, like the materialistic kind. It opened the door to the spiritual evolution idea, which was taught by these heretics. And the last thing, like as I said, um, the Antichrist that's referred to here, the spirit of the Antichrist is, of course, the devil. And he is at work today. And he was also at work at that time. Um, John, or not John, sorry, Paul says the same thing. He says, the spirit of lawlessness, the mystery rather is the word he used. The mystery of lawlessness is at work now. So he's saying the same spirit, the same person who was behind these heresies in Paul's day and John's day is going to be unrestrained in the end times. And so again, it's like God has been holding things back. And Paul and John in their day could see, listen, the dam is only going to hold for so long and we have no idea when it's going to bust. We're starting to see some leaks in the dam in the churches. They were seeing these heresies and they wondered, could it be soon? They didn't know when Jesus was going to come back. They really didn't. So it could could happen then. It didn't, but we're seeing it today along with so many other signs that are converging. If we just saw one sign here and one sign there, it would be you know, enough for us to say, well, it could happen, but we don't know that it will. But we're seeing so many signs converging at the same time. And again, those signs are all listed in Matthew 24, the wars and rumors of wars, globalism, the rise of a new Babel, the uh, European alliances that are forming to revive Roman empire, the pestilences that were, you know, monkeypox, COVID that's affecting everyone, not just regions, but 
international crisis taking place, famine that's going to touch everybody everywhere that people are talking about. It's coming. It's on the way. All of this is being talked about in the book of Revelation, and uh, Jesus warned us about these things. And so um, the spiritual element, though, the spiritual element of deception that's called Antichrist, um, that was happening back then, and it's happening today, and we have to be on our guard. We have to have a high view of Jesus. He's Lord. He's God in the flesh. And we have to have a high view of grace. Salvation is a free gift and it's not by works of the law. And if we get those two things right, you can get a lot of other little things wrong and you could still be in fellowship with God. But you cannot get, uh, you cannot get into fellowship with God unless you have those two things right. You got to have the deity of Christ right and you got to have the uh, grace through faith message right. Um, and John, of course, is warning his audience that they don't fall into the trap of denying those truths and thus lose a reward. And so we will continue our series next week. I hope that you got something out of this if you're listening. I hope that it was a blessing to you. And um, with that, God bless.